0: Welcome Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games.
1: And today we are doing our first ever episode oriented around diving into the ludology of a specific designer. And in this case, it's designers. We're starting this series, maybe we'll have more episodes in the future, with a look at Kramer and Kiesling Designs. We'll start off with a mini review of T-Call, one of their famous collaborations from 1999. And then we'll talk about some observations we have of the larger catalogs of games, some histories of what games these two designers have put together, and we'll share our thoughts on the ones we've played as we get into that.
0: I'm really excited for this episode, and in some ways, it's kind of a, a funny group of people to start with because we're going to be talking about their designs together. Uh, they have many that both Jake and I enjoy and have played, and then also their designs as separate designers, maybe a collaboration with other people. Uh, for Wolfgang Kramer, El Grande comes to mind as a game he didn't design with Michael Kiesling that has this huge impact on how we think about him and for Michael Kiesling we'll talk a lot about Azul a game that had nothing to do with Wolfgang Kramer and defines how we think about them so it's sort of this interesting we'll, we'll get into it they're defined as much by their collaboration I think at this point as by their individual ludographies. so this can be a catch-all approach we'll get in we'll talk about each of them as designers them together what each of them bring to games we've played from our observation uh, and combined Jake and I have played 17 if our count is correct, Kramer and or Kiesling Games. Yeah, that's a lot from yeah. this pair of designers. So I think this is a great place to start. Also, really excited to kick off the episode by talking about T'Call. I think it'll be an interesting case study from arguably their most successful collaboration, a game that won them the Spiel des Jahres in 1999. And in a lot of ways laid the groundwork for, I think, a successful collaboration for years to come. But we have some housekeeping, Jake.
1: Yeah. So before we get into that, we just want to read a recent review of Decision Space that a very kind listener left. This review comes from DJ Shags via Apple Podcasts Canada. And all of our five-star reviews are my favorite review, but this one really made me smile. So I'm gonna read it now, titled, An Approachable Introduction to Game Analysis. I've been listening to Decision Space for maybe about a year, first finding their episode on El Grande, how fitting, and slowly working my way through the back catalog with great enjoyment. Jake and Brendan's conversations cover how board games work their magic when people come together to play them, how the mechanics, interactions, and components of board games help build a pretend environment in front of us and in our heads where we can temporarily feel and think about different things in the decision space. The vocabulary and frameworks they've developed, their analysis of the shapes and kinds of decisions games confront us with, has helped me think more critically about what I enjoy the most in board games, why I seek to play them. This has helped me reevaluate my own collection, start to slim it down to what games give me the most joy and temper the temptations of the cult of the new, to instead dive deeper into what I already have and properly explore what's there. I also especially appreciate how both hosts are open about their biases and usually hold back from saying a game is good or bad because of its decision space, instead, focusing on what the game presents to you when you play it. Keep up the great work.
0: Thank you so much to DJ Shagaz. Did I say that right, Jake?
1: Shags, maybe?
0: Yeah, DJ Shags for that awesome review. It means so much to us. And I think it. It's always great when we sort of have a review that kind of captures exactly what we're trying to do with the show and just perfectly puts it better than we can put it ourselves. So, I feel
1: like we, when I read this, I was like, we did it. <laughs> we can yeah. retire. But now we can't because DJ Shags wants us to keep
0: the great work. So we will. And DJ Chags did us an amazing slam dunk by bringing things full circle, talking about El Grande in the review that we just happened to get right in time for this episode, in which we will no doubt talk more about El Grande.
1: Awesome. Well, with that housekeeping out of the way, let's get right into our episode.
0: Seacall is a 1999 game designed by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer. It won the Spiel DRs Jahres that year. And oftentimes when we cover a game on the show uh, that won the Spiel DRs, Jahres, we like to either read the full statement from the committee nominating it or maybe an excerpt so that's what i'll do here this is translated from german but i think that this is a nice way to set the scene for to call which is that to call by michael kiesling and wolfgang kramer thrives on this on a mysterious atmosphere at the beginning the almost impenetrable jungle lies in front of the players they are struggling to make their way and don't know what to expect next I think that's like a nice little summary of the excitement around some of the systems in Call. which is, let me give a quick overview of it for those who haven't played it. Takal is a action point driven board game in which players have 10 actions to do on their turn and a menu of things they can do. At the beginning of the game, the map is fairly empty and every turn players start their turn by drawing a tile from a face down stack of tiles that are sequenced A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So you have a rough flow in the power level of those tiles as they come out. They draw a tile and they place it down on the board uh, anywhere they'd like so long as it's accessible to the other tiles because players are also with their actions going to be adding workers to the board, exploring sites that they can increase the value of uh, and there's area control scoring of those values. They might reveal treasure that they can then go collect uh, and play a set collection mini game. You can also force other players to trade you for those treasures. And then you're also in general, maybe adding camps to the board and playing this very puzzly area control movement game with this growing map that's increasingly discovered throughout the game and controlling how much different spaces on the board are worth in terms of scoring at the end of the game but those are shared potential scoring if someone gets more control of an area than you do it doesn't matter how much work you put into improving that temple you improved it for someone else's game
1: and all of this is driven by it's just an absolutely wild action selection mechanism where you get 10 action points to spend on every single turn so moving a worker is like one action claiming uh, treasure i think is three building up a temple is two so as you can see it's just it creates a massive potential i would say for ap compared to a more streamlined micro turn type of game that we expect in games coming out today there's a lot of ways you can break down and use 10 action points in any turn of the game uh so it's that type of vibe where you really need the right kind of magic circle and all be on the same page about how much time we're willing to take um and then maybe do a little and in this game you know we're just going to all make an effort to play quick because it can kind of drag if we're all taking really long time as part of the teach or something so i think that's just something to be aware of that's in there and that's the game gets a lot of i think just criticism for when people are going back to it now after playing a bunch of modern games being like wow this is like Crazy AP. The yeah. potential is there for that for sure.
0: Yep. And I, I think because of that system, right? Having these 10 action points, uh, your turn starts by placing a tile, which isn't an action, it's just a mandatory thing that you do. Uh so there's potential, potentially that's a, a long decision point potentially as well, because there's lots of places you could put that tile. It's a hexagonal tile, so there's different ways you could orient it. Um, so you have to think through the consequences of where your tile goes. Then you have these 10 action points that you can mix and match in all these different ways, which is As Jake said, it can cause a ton of AP, but it also means that it's this massive decision space potentially, where the number of available options and things that you can do and meaningful things that you can do feels really robust. And you also get in a lot of Euro games that we play and cover on the show, Jake, you get this turn over turn plan fulfillment where you can get into a flow state sort of over the course of a few turns. And I find one thing that I love about playing to call played it three times now, uh, once at four and twice at three, is that sometimes you kind of get that sense of planning and execution all in one turn, right? (laughs) Yeah. Which is cool, And sometimes you also in this game get it over a couple turns. But like you said, those turns can drag really long. The thing I think that surprised the two of us the most, because we went into the game knowing about the action point system, at least vaguely, and some of the AP problems that could arise from it, where it just can take a long time to evaluate the best move on your turn, is actually the way the scoring system works. So hidden in all those tiles that players are revealing throughout the game are volcano tiles. When those come out, it starts a scoring round. And the cool mechanism here is not that system, which is fine, serviceable. For sure. But the fact that when that happens, everyone takes 10 action points and then they score their position. So they basically get to craft the board as favorably as they possibly can for themselves, and then score. And then the player clockwise to their left will then take their turn crafting the board state as optimally as they can with 10 action points, then score that position for themselves, which is this really cool, almost, it reminds me of this way of playing golf, Jake called best ball. Have You heard of best ball, Jake? Is that like a scramble you do with a partner? Yeah, exactly. So it's like a a team. You hit the ball exactly. You play off your best shot, and it's not exactly that system, but it's a similar effect where it keeps the scoring fairly tight, and I think it allows you to fight more for certain area control spaces because you have the chance of catching up each time and sort of, yeah. sort of taking the lead.
1: Um, and there's really, I think, a nice self-balancing mechanism there too, in that the when you draw the volcano tile, it's a blank. So you don't get to do anything beneficial from drawing that tile. Whereas if a different player draws the, a tile with treasures on it, then they can then be the first person to go claim those treasures. Um, so the downside is a blank, but the benefit of that is you get to be the first to go through scoring. So, you know, maybe you can get the majority on a temple with only three workers. Then if the next person wants to get the majority of that same temple and also score it, they can. But that will require them to have at least four workers there. So the investment gets greater and greater around the table. We should also say I've only played this once uh, and we and I played the, the same way as we've described it here with everybody just drawing a tile and resolving it. Uh, the game also includes advanced rules where you can auction off these tiles which paying points paying points yeah right so a point auction like victory points to to earn these tiles uh which i think certainly would reduce even more the the amount of randomness in the game uh, because if you're always the person scoring last that might be a a difficult position to win from just because as i just described uh, you'll have like the highest investment over and over. And it's, you know, it's possible that the same person or the same couple of people are drawing all the volcanoes, uh, and that would be tough. So you could choose to play the auction way instead, though, of course, that's going to, you know, lengthen the game, I would imagine considerably
0: and definitely raises the skill ceiling on this game, right, where you have to be able to evaluate all of the tiles that come out all the positions and make a value judgment based on how many points you think you should be giving up. It seems like the sort of thing that's perfect. It So tailored to the market of 1999, where you expect people to play this game 10, 20, 30 times. Exactly. And it is going to make that even more
1: rewarding as you do. The other cool... Oh, go for it. I was going to say, I think too the action points, like the AP prone nature of this game is also... Something of the time where I think people are more comfortable, and this is just what I've gleaned from listening to people who are more elders in this hobby than me would be, you know, a game night would be coming over, and we're going to like all just really think and really noodle on this as like a serious activity where it's fine to play a game like this for two and a half or three hours where everybody's really just all that, you know, magic circle is that everyone is going to be taking a long time, you know, playing this like a uh, chest without a chess clock or whatever uh, and trying to make the best moves and I think you know I think it can really work in that setting too um, but in a climate where I have a hundred other games on myself trying to get time on the table and you know other people are bringing a bunch of games to game night it makes me want this to be an hour experience mm. a little bit more you know uh, yeah. so I think maybe it's just the more it's just the competition and sort of like the marketplace for table time uh, that makes that feel just like a little bit grating to me in 2023.
0: And so to call come is the first game in a trilogy. I think when you win the spill DRs, there's always like a desire to say, hey, we did something right. Let's do more things like it. Uh so it's followed up by a game called Java, which was republished as Cuzco. Uh, and then the cap of that trilogy is a game called Mexica. And then also sometimes this other game called Torres also gets included in there. And all of these use the action point system in some way. We'll talk about it more. But Jake, having played more to call and more Cusco, I do think one other thing about these action point systems is the more you play, uh, the more you do understand. You, you build the you build a heuristic toolkit that lets you make the tough decisions of how to mix and match these points a little more quickly. Uh, I think at least with To Call and Cusco, the two that I have experienced with, it starts to become clear what your main objective should be and how you should set up for trying to control a really meaningful temple space or something of that sort such that you can prune away huge swaths of that massive decision tree if you include all of the permutations of the 10 actions but i think it, this is a game that rewards investment but requires some to kind of get there and i think they could all play in 90 minutes but you just have to you have to have played it at least once to be able to get to that point
1: yeah totally and when i was playing it i think the decision space comparison i would make would be to something like five tribes mm-hmm. in that in both cases the games it feels like the decision space is so big that and that the search is so enormous to sort of think through all possible permutations that like the more you could sit and look at the board for 5 minutes and you might see a better move by than a point or the two the first one by a point or two but you also might not You know, you, right, and then you're... We've been sitting there for five minutes while somebody thinks or whatever, and nothing was really gained from it. So, like when I teach five tribes, and I haven't played it in a while, though I do think it's a pretty good game. I always sort of say, like, give that caveat: is like, you know, if you see a good move, take it. And I think it's quite easy, as you're saying, even within that first play, to get some heuristics and understanding of the action point menu uh, that you can get to like a good move pretty quickly, but my challenge is it feels like if somebody is just willing to spend a lot more time thinking than somebody else i think that is sort of the risk of this magic circle because that could benefit them right like you might if you if you're taking over the course of the game 10 more thinking time minutes than somebody else you might be finding a, a point or two here or there of advantage and then win the game and then that could create just like kind of like an less satisfying experience for the person or people who who weren't spending as much time thinking.
0: Yeah. I think for me, the thing about this decision space that is so striking and interesting is both the treasure system. So the treasure system is you'll flip these tiles that will have a certain number of treasures on them. If you move one of your little workers uh, onto that space, you can spend, like Jake said, three action points to claim one of those treasures. And uh, there's a certain number in the game, I think five or six different types. And if you have one treasure, it scores one point. If you get a pair, you score more. And if you have three of a kind uh, which is the most there are of any given type of treasure in the game you score a bunch of points and you don't just score them once every time there's a scoring round you score them so there's this interesting flow throughout the game but you can also trade for other people's treasure so long as you're not breaking a pair or a set that they have which means there's this interesting tension around if I go treasure hunting and I reveal treasures that other people have, I'm sort of doing some work on their behalf, doing that, increasing the potential. And then I had mentioned, Jake, that with the temples that you're increasing the value of throughout the course of the game, you can choose which area of control spaces end up being worth the most. There's also this risk that your work could be for someone else's benefit. And I think the tension around trying to tease out, okay, how do I do things that are going to be most beneficial to me with the risk of other people being able to swoop in and take advantage? Uh, is neat and it creates tense, interesting moments. Uh, it feels bad when you flip a treasure that is going to complete someone else's set, but then you know they're going to trade you for it and maybe they'll trade you something beneficial. And these are forced trades. Uh, trade is maybe a, in a lot of games, right? Trading implies negotiation. There's no negotiation here. Someone could just use that to snatch it out of your hands if you don't have a pair, but that's a nice little moment. And then also the movement puzzle, which we haven't talked about much, Jake, but maybe you could touch on it briefly because I think the fact that players are dynamically creating career- creating the board and creating how expensive in terms of action points it is to move in certain spaces is a huge part of the longevity of to call and one thing that sets it apart for me
1: absolutely yeah there are so many great mechanisms here in this game and it's all the way back in 1999 that you just when i play the first time it's like how how are we not seeing these kind of things more like you like that treasure trading mechanism as a yeah. way to like make getting sets a little bit more possible uh is is just so good and when you trade for them if you're taking somebody's single treasure and exchanging for a different one it doesn't feel that bad because you're still getting the same thing and the other person is expending a lot of action points i think like three or something to do it yep and then also being the person doing the trade it feels great also because you're like wow i just got such awesome value because you get to score those uh treasure sets in each scoring phase so i thought i think that's awesome i think the fact that you can uh expand a bunch of action points to put a worker on top of the temple so that you always have it is like such a great trade-off too because you're taking that worker out of the game right yeah and all the workers that you use all the workers that you use yeah except for one
0: that goes on top of it yep
1: yeah, so it's, there's like a big trade off there, but when do you do it? Do you do it early in the game so that you're guaranteed all these points, even though the temple is probably not going to be as high up at that point in the game? So it's just really cool. And then I think the action, moving around, you can spend an action point to move anywhere uh, one space away, but sometimes there are steps that make it cost more expensive depending on the number of stones. So that adds a wrinkle to the puzzle of placing down the tiles you can also teleport for an action point between a tent that you can spend five action points to place on it open space on the board um, so you can sort of use that if you're smart and strategic use that as like a, a point that will help you uh, have more efficient navigation over the course of the game uh, so all that's cool and it kind of goes back to the 10 action points i mean, if you spend all 10 action points on placing workers out and moving them around you have so much potential on any given turn of the game to just completely shift your entire board state. And that's just not possible. It's a different decision space. It's fun. It's cool. And that's also not possible in a micro turn setup. Yeah. yeah. We can have these dynamic swingy turns. So I think that's all really cool.
0: And I think the things that I walked away from playing to call with and have kind of teed up this episode in some ways that stand out are sort of the, the novel scoring system that I haven't seen in any other game that's really fun. I think that's something we'll talk about more in this episode. The puzzly nature of the turns and the games overall. Uh, it's something that we'll talk about more because I think Michael Kiesling brings that to his lo- a lot of his designs. And then the area control is something that just pops up over and over again with Wolfgang Kramer. So we see that come out in some of his designs and it's all sort of packaged here in Call, which I think made it the perfect game to talk about at the start of this episode uh, as we lead in to discussing the designers overall. I will say Jake and I both really enjoyed Tikal.
1: Yeah, uh, I feel I th- like I've been kind of critical but I re- really like this game and i'm eager to dive in more it's just a little i think a little fragile in terms of the uh, magic circle that you need for it to fire for everybody.
0: I think too, for you, Jake, it's sometimes tough to with the same group to dive into a game over and over again, because the groups want to play different things. And this game kind of wants that. Yeah. So that's part of the problem, maybe too. But there is a chance if Jake and I get even more plays and we might do a full episode deep dive on call and we might in the future do a follow up episode on the mass games if if we get more plays of each of them in I think it's such a legendary series that could warrant that sort of thing
1: so brendan you tell me that we've done 17k and or k games we've played that many yeah it's nuts
0: Between the two of us, we have covered, we have played that many games, which is, as you said, really impressive. And I think that we'll get into, we'll talk through examples, we're going to touch on a lot of the games that we played as we read through the ludographies of each of these designers, and we'll give thoughts on some of them. And then at the end of this episode, we'll talk about sort of things that have risen to the top of observations of the types of uh, what sets their designs apart from other designers a little bit, the decisions that they tend to offer in their games. But clearly, they're designers who we really like going back to their games or at least experiencing them. I think one thing that draws me to Kramer and or Kiesling Designs is they're always really novel and they feel so much of this modern design movement, but different than a lot of other games out there. I know I'm going to get something that feels a little fresh and it isn't your sort of bog standard worker placement efficiency Euro game. It's
1: tough too, because like, I want to say that kramer and kiesling is like one of my favorite designers but that's two people so it's yeah, not right. really fair
0: yeah totally
1: <laughs> but i feel like kramer and kiesling together if i could combine that entire ludology they're like up there maybe number two behind Feld, maybe even fighting for number one if i get to combine yeah. two together
0: that's yeah
1: but then that's i don't awesome. know if i could put either independently ahead of like knizia sure. or steffenfeld yeah. you know
0: No, totally. And what's so interesting is I really like a lot of the games they've designed together. But like I was saying, some of the games that they've designed on their own, El Grande and the Azul series being big examples of that, actually... I think are some of their best work. Right, which puts them in this interesting in-between zone where they're famous for collaborating and have made lots of really good games together that are some of Jake and I's favorite games, but also they're like most successful and most notice- notable they actually did on their own. Something so both of the, these individuals, Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling, are German designers. Wolfgang Kramer was born in 1942, so he's in his 80s now.
1: That is insane. I yeah. had I mean it makes sense cuz we talk about like. Like, oh, El Grande, 1995, like, T-Call, like, 1999. That's, like, a long time ago now to, like, already be a professional doing game design. But, wow. In, in you're in his 80s, still, like, actively working, putting out new releases. New That's freaking
0: so cool. Yeah. I think it's amazing. And... Wolf and Michael Kiesling was born in 1957. So he's in his 60s. And they started working together in the mid 90s. What happened actually was Wolfgang Kringer at this point in time was a really successful designer already. He had gained notoriety from games like he has a game called Heimlich & Co., uh, which was the Spiel der Jahres winner in 1984. His first Spiel the Jahres win. We're going to come back to that point because these two are legends when it comes to German awards. But that game came out. It was really successful. It was actually the first game recognized for having a... Scoring track around the outside of the board, so that's actually sort of known colloquially or was as like a Kramer track uh because he invented that sort of design idea, which I think is really cool legacy to have. He also did games; he was designing games back then, like Downforce is the new version of what I believe was called Top Gear originally, a game that Jake and I don't really like. We actually did cover that one on the show and sort of felt it. I think it's his weakest design. I've I think that was
1: far. like I feel like that was the only game we've ever on bought. this podcast we've ever done that we both just pan.
0: Yeah, it was, we did not enjoy Downforce. We
1: had other like hard reviews, like critical reviews, but I don't think there's ever been one that either of us have just been like, we don't think this actually works.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it shows its age, maybe a lot more than some of the games that he designed that came later, like El Grande and the others. But so apparently what happened was Michael Kiesling was working on a couple games. He was, it's funny, on the side of the to call box, there's little bios that talk about how Wolfgang Kramer left a job in business management to design games full-time and michael kiesling was in a similar position but sort of kept his job he released a couple games and they did okay, but not great. So he admired Wolfgang Kramer's work. So he wrote to him and they had a correspondence. They actually got on the phone and started talking and a game was born within this like three hour long conversation. And they worked for many years collaborating uh, in their designs just through phone calls and exchanging letters back and forth. Not even often meeting to work on design. So I think that's really cool. Now they obviously, I think, uh, probably do meet up and, and work on games together.
1: It's also funny that the T call box talks about the collaboration is still uninterrupted to this day. And being that was like 24 years ago and still they collaborated on a game uh, that literally released in 2023.
0: Yeah, yeah, this band never broke up. Yeah. Uh, so, what I was alluding to before about the spill the between Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling, they've won seven spill the And that's not recommends. That's not, that's winning the spill the seven times. So, that's. Okay,
1: but do you think like the,
0: there's some like pro German bias here?
1: No, maybe, but still. <laughs> yeah, I know, seven okay. times. Yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah. I want to read them out. So, it's Heimlich Co., that's just a Kramer game, 1984, just a Kramer game off. A-, a chase i'm sorry for pronouncing german poorly in 87 korsaro in 1991 el grande in 1996 so far these are all just wolfgang kramer to call in 1999 wins the spiel der Yars, that's them together torres wins it uh wins it again in 2000 as a follow-up and then in 2017 michael kiesling gets his own spiel der for azul
1: the student becomes the master yes wow yeah what a narrative it i One observation about that, I I thought about asking you as a joke, like, what do you think, like, could Tikal win the Spiel in 2023? And it's a trick question, because the answer is obviously no, because the Spiel represents such a different weight and class of games now. But it's cool to see that sort of this group's design goals in some way being like these kind of flag bearers for German game design has kind of like, I don't know if they've influenced the spiel or their games are made to like appeal to the spiel, but you know, being able to win it. in I don't know any of the ones before this, what the games are like, but being able to win it in 1996 with El Grande and 99 with Tikal, those are very different games and are winning it today. It's games like Azul, right? And so they've been able to like sort of ride that wave or maybe create it of sort of like what the appetite is for games in Germany.
0: Yeah, I think that's really it's that's such a good point, Jake, and just so impressive to stay relevant for such a long period of time, uh, the two of them and uh, together, I really quickly want to I did some research uh, and found a nice interview with Wolfgang Kramer. So I want to quickly read one excerpt that he has on speaking about cooperative development, co designing with Michael Kiesling. He says the cooperative development of a game with uh, a co author is much livelier, more active, and is a lot of fun, a lot more fun than developing a game on your own. Two heads think more than one. It's possible to change your ideas in a short time. The games get tested more. I do think that's an important point. That's me interjecting that. Uh, And then the best idea out of several comes to the fore. Discussions add life to the development process and make the work more varied. You get confronted with new interesting ideas. These are all advantages, but there's also one big disadvantage. You only get half the royalties. (laughs) So just a nice little bit of personality coming out there.
1: Yeah. Tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, this is just wild speculation, but like, I wonder if the game board game design hobby moves more into design collectives mm. and collaborations like we've seen with, I like think, flat out games is a good example. There's sort of like, the italian designer cohort that are yep. you know putting out tons of you know highly revered euro games every year working in you know different pairs and different collaborations
0: shem phillips and sj mcdonald the garfield games c- yeah. crew yeah
1: has yeah uh i was also going to say there's even like the uh dang it i'm blanking on it now but sort of like an unnamed designer group that's putting out all those like mass market games at target yeah. what is it called it's like Prospero Hall. Prospero Hall. Yeah. Like that type of thing. I wonder if we'll see more and more of that because it just seems like it makes a lot of sense. Uh obviously you have like the individual genius or whatever that's can like, you know, Reiner Knizia, like you, you wouldn't see him as part of like a band. He's sort of a solo artist. But yeah, I wonder if as games continue to grow, as designing becomes more of a viable career, if we'll see more and more collaborations and partnerships putting out the best games.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a good point, Jake. And you, it's cool how you complement each other in other ways. And I think maybe as we go through this, do you think we should just start with the individual ludographies and kind of hit games that stand out and games that we want to comment on and then talk about the two of their designs together? Does that work for you?
1: Yeah, sounds great.
0: Okay, I think as we do, one thing that comes to the fore for me is Michael Kiesling's designs feel very puzzly in nature to me. They're a little thinkier, uh, maybe more personal player board driven type designs, and we'll and Kramers are a lot of on the board action, shared play space type things. So let's talk about the big one, El Grande. Uh, This is not designed with Michael Kiesling. This is done with, it's an Ulrich and Kramer design. I think it's Richard Ulrich. And uh, obviously El Grande comes onto the scene, wins the Spill B.R.s in 1996, and and is like one of the best area control games of all time. I still love playing it to this day. And it's it's novel, it's interesting. Something that stands out about it is the simultaneous reveal action uh, that's so important for how the Castillo scores that you see appear in another big game of... Wolfgang Kramer's six nipped.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have a whole episode on El Grande. So if you want to hear our thoughts in full, you can easily find that by just Googling, you know, decision space El Grande. Episode
0: 13. Yeah.
1: So it's, it's an old one, but a good one, I think. And yeah, we're both big fans of this game. I think I have it in my top 20 games of all time still. It's my favorite area control game to this day, which I think is, you know, it's always hard to completely remove your bias from it. And I think something about it, like being like this old and legendary game might creep in. But I think just like in raw enjoyment of area majority type uh, games where that's like the main central mechanism. I don't think that any I've played have sort of like rivaled the amount of enjoyment I've had playing El Grande though, having played it a few more times in person lately, I am struck by it does feel a little clunky on the table, you know, compared to more streamlined modern games. There's a lot of procedural elements to this game. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about scoring in general in a lot of these systems later. Uh, That's pretty procedural. You just have to go like step, 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 step. Uh, And I think just the way the rounds play out too. It's like, okay, everybody's got your card. Like, okay, let's reveal them. Okay, who's going? Okay, what what are you doing? You know, all that just adds to downtime. That is a lot more significant than just, okay, we're just going clockwise around the table doing one quick simple thing yeah. so that's what you're used to that's what you're looking for el grande is definitely going to show its age in that respect when you check it out now
0: definitely i think it's fun though to see in el grande there's a grande sort of cube that everyone has that gives you more scoring points and to call kind of brings that idea in uh where you have one worker that's just worth a few more points it's this is nice little wrinkle that shows the footprint of kramer on that game which is cool we already talked about downforce another notable game from wolfgang kramer that i think it's important to mention uh, i don't think we needed to on it. I had mentioned Six Nymphed. Six Nymphed is a really light card game that uses a simultaneous reveal uh, mechanism, just like El Grande does. Uh, that's about trying to get cards into the right sort of rows on the table you're all choosing a card simultaneously and then revealing and resolving them uh it's a game that's really famous for playing well up to higher player counts and it's all donkey space all the time it's trying to get in the i know that you know and trying to guess what values people are going to be playing and i would say it's one of the lighter games that's notable from the two of these designers
1: coliseum another notable one every time this comes up on the podcast i mention that this is one of the games that i've missed that i'm most eager to try if given the chance um Thank you. the uh-huh. cat I think it, it sounds really cool to me how you have like sort of I think three rounds where you're like putting on a show mm-hmm. and your end game score is whatever your points is in the best show that you're able to pull off. One That's neat cool thing to me.
0: about it too with the that show that you're putting on is each player has almost a menu of of different combinations of tiles that you can put together to put on one of these shows. So to call give and the mass series gives you a menu of actions you can sh- take and in this game it literally is like this long card jake and I call it a menu. Menu because it's like this combination would be this type of show and this combination of tiles is this type of show uh, i haven't played in a long time but i remember being really excited about that sort of setup and this mix and matchability of like okay if i go for trying to get this show but that doesn't happen what what could i pivot into there's also a board and you're like moving this you're all moving this uh emperor around i guess he's coming to your coliseum uh around this sort of shared board and there's it, there's lots of novel ideas here it's one i've only played once but i i really did enjoy it felt distinct in terms of what it was doing maybe the menu system was a little clunky uh, but i'd love to play this one again have you played this princes of florence i have not played the princes of florence you but it's one I? i'm really interested in it's one of the earlier i'm sure there's even earlier examples but it's an early example of a polyomino game where you can buy polyominoes and you're adding them to a personal player board, I believe. This is one that gets uh, that's really talked up as and lauded as one of Kramer's best designs. So that's definitely on my list. There's also, I believe, a new version uh, in the works. I Or there's a new version out there with improved art that maybe was only released in Europe, but not the United States. Something along those lines.
1: No, it sounds cool. And then the last one uh, we have on this list is I'm looking co which we already talked about notable for using the victory point tracker on the outside of the board. I think this is a innovation that you know, it sounds like a graphic design improvement. But it's also one of those things where you see like how graphic design can impact the decision space so much, you know, to yeah. take a game from who do I think is winning to like, there's the points right there in front of you. That's going to create a very different experience of play uh, than with all that being hidden.
0: Yep. And then there's so many other games listed for people to delve into uh, that maybe don't quite rise to this crop for Wolfgang Kramer. Uh, But that's just a, a nice little summary of some of the solo games that he's done. So Jake, let's pivot into Michael Kiesling. Our puzzly puzzly designer of the two, probably. All right.
1: Most famous for Azul, as we mentioned, the 2017 Spiel winner. And then following... Off that, as you said, you win the spiel, you do a series. So we have Azul Stained Glass of Sintra, the most polar, well, maybe not the most polarizing one, but it seems like a a lot of people will say this is either the best or their least favorite. Uh, Then you've got Azul Summer Pavilion and Azul Queen's Garden, or as I like to call it, not Azul Queen's (laughs) Garden because it's so fundamentally different. That would be the most polarizing one. I think just because most people just seem like don't like this game. I think it's great, but it's a very different game. It's a different experience. To me, this is like that super stinky heads down puzzly game. Very much like, shoot, what was that game we played about? That was like sort of Japanese inspired where you're building the house and doing balance. At oh, bamboo. Yeah, it's very much in that same space as Bamboo. But I, I like Azul Queen's Garden much more than I liked Bamboo.
0: I think a lot of Michael Keesling's designs as we go through them offered like the interaction is coming from you're all choosing in some ways from a shared group of resources but then you're going to bring them back to your own space where no one's going to mess with you after you've successfully grabbed them but typically within that shared space people could really be inter- informing the your path through the decision space and it's very interactive so Azul has that through and through yeah. we covered Azul in episode 47 it's a game Jake and I both love and a game I at the time said is wonderful for the decisions just live just beyond On the cognitive horizon at most points uh until they snap into focus and then it's right there so it's this like delicious puzzle that gives you so much reward every round as things are super fuzzy and then become very very clear
1: it's a weird one for me because it's not my favorite game to play but i still feel like it's a 10 out of 10 design you know it just feels like such a great distalization of the exact idea and this exact like type of decision space you know and i i think not all games can work synthesized down to their most kind of pure simple pure form but azul is one that can and you know i think it's one all always have in the collection and probably be playing for life just because of what it does. So I would also just add with the the Azul games, the for me, the two I keep in my collection is the first Azul and Queen's Garden, because I just feel like having played them all, Azul 2 and 3 are offering very much the same type of decision space. And I just like the simplified version of that. Whereas Queen's Garden feels like, okay, now we're actually doing something quite different. Yeah.
0: Nice. That's awesome. It also has hexes instead of squares. Whoa. Or diamonds, right? <laughs> For me, since we covered Azul on the show in episode 47, Mai and I have actually been playing a ton of Azul. It's one of the our sort of like weeknight games where we'll just play two or three games of it. Uh, so the more I play it, the more I continue to enjoy it. I just think it's one of the, the best, one of the most fully realized games where it achieves what it Sets out to do so perfectly. There's, totally. it's rare that there's a game where you would change nothing about it, and as yeah, well as exactly that my thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: what we I see Vikings on the list next. Have you played that? I see it's on Yukata. That we I haven't. I have why, not. Why did you list it?
0: So Vikings was a, a popular game in its day. It was a Z-Man release and a solo design from Michael Kiesling uh, after the success of To Call in the Mass Trilogy. So. It has this uh, wheel in which players are using to sort of like draft shared elements, kind of similar to Palaces of Carrara. And it came out in 2007. Uh, It's still to this day ranked 550 on on Board Game Geek, which I think shows that in its time, it was a much more notable design. I think also a heavier game from Kiesling coming out by himself kind of stands out uh, among what's here. A lot of the the games that end up being heavier from him, I think are mostly co-designs. So this is, it's interesting to see. So I thought it was of note to kind of mention vikings as a game that maybe made a splash uh, back when it came out in 2007 it's it's colorful if you look up uh, pictures on uh, board game geek there's there's lots of tiles going on lots of different colors and again it looks very very puzzly uh and has a neat wheel. So it's one that I'd be curious in checking out at some point. But it's not one that I felt super drawn to it feels like it's from a, a different era of game design, for sure.
1: Cool. I'll talk briefly about Heaven and Ale. So this is another bigger, it's a popular release, it feels popular to me. I don't know if that's just because people in our uh, decision space discord are disproportionately big fans of this game. But for that reason, it's been recommended to me a lot. And I had the opportunity to to play it with a couple of Decision Space listeners at Geekway to the West. So that was a really fun experience. So this is a 2017 design by Kiesling alone, but in collaboration with Andreas Schmidt. It's essentially, so I'm going to get in trouble for this, but if it's like one of those Rondell movement games uh, where you're moving around a circle and that is allowing you to take sort of the action space that's there that we call but, it like
0: a market rondelle,
1: right yeah we call this a market rondel so it has this cool mechanism where you can go as far as you want around the rondel but once you get to the end you people can keep taking turns until they finish the rondel but you don't just want to always go the shortest distance you can kind of like you typically want to do in a game like Glenmore because all of the tiles have a cost basically so you have like money as Uh, kind of gate to how much you're able to do. So you have to keep that in balance between going, you know, not squandering your action efficiency, but making sure you're also going far enough to get the tiles paying for the tiles that'll be most valuable to you you're taking the tiles you're buying off of this market rondelle type system and putting it onto a personal player board and what you're doing with that personal player board feels a lot like palaces of carrara in types of, in terms of their sort of like a gated scoring and also income system so you have tiles on your board some of them are worth points victory points some of them are worth money just like you see in palaces of carrara. Um, and then there's a separate action on the rondelle where you can get a uh, I think it's like a farm type thing on your board and when you where you put the farm it can point at different numbers of tiles and then you get to activate those I think maybe it's like a barn but you put that down and if you get the right type of one you'll activate all the tiles it points at so if it points at one that gives you three points or three money uh that can help you get those points and money. And then there's yet another space on the board that allows you to like activate all of a single number. So like if I have a bunch of fives on my board, I could activate all my fives, but then you can only do that once and now I won't be able to activate any other numbers again. Mm. Uh, So all of this is you have to like maintain income so you can get more tiles, but you're also trying to get points. That's sort of uh, where uh, the rubber meets the road with this game and kind of the decision space is playing with that. The last thing I would sort of add to give you a sense of the game is it it has just the most convoluted end game scoring system I've ever experienced in a game. It's almost like you have to see it to understand. Yeah, I don't think we can explain it. Or believe it. Um, But essentially you've got Uh, instead of just like one thing moving around a scoring track you've got four things or you've got five one is like basically represents your end game scoring and the other five are i guess different resource types that you can push up the track and then at the end of the game you move back all the five resource things and for The distance you move them back, you get to move forward, your scoring piece, and then your score will be like where they all meet after doing all of that moving back and forward. And it's just wild and very difficult to understand where individual people might be (laughs) at in the game. So that was Heaven and Ale. I only played it once and it was kind of late and the con. So I was like somewhat delirious, but I had a good time with it. I would play it again. I think if I I don't know if like all the extra complexity means I like it more than something like Palaces of Carrera, which feels like doing a lot of the same interesting things in a more simple way. But I would definitely play it again. And, you know, I really appreciate uh, Beer for Dad and Upped manity for teaching and playing it with me. Again,
0: I was going to ask you, Jake, if you felt it was one of the puzzlier games of, of Michael Kieslings you've played, but I think the answer following that description was yes.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's definitely puzzly, but also far more interactive than okay. Azul. So it, it feels more like a palace as a Carrara than an Azul, but just with like extra puzzliness baked into it. Sure. The
0: final game of note that we wanted to list uh, that's just a solo design from Michael Keesling is Miyabi. This is a game that a lot of Kiesling fans tend to enjoy. A game that I have not played, but Jake has. Uh, so Jake, what's your what's the rub on Miyabi?
1: Yeah, so I only played it once and I think it's really good. I think it might be for many people just a as good or or better than azul it feels like a lot like azul but just like more dynamic there's more going on uh there's sort of like shared end game scoring uh and then i think there's also personal scoring objectives but the main mechanism is uh you are taking turns drafting tiles from the middle and putting them on a personal player board and then you can build up from the, you can build up an elevation, something that we see mirrored in games like Cusco, or I guess this mirrors that, right? You could do that in Cusco. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Thought so. But yeah, it's like a really cool game. Very, very simple mechanism. Fits right into that same weight as in Azul. But I think that just because of like, I think there's just more excitement built in. So it feels less of like that kind of like coffee game. Like we're just going to do something yeah. quick and simple, a little bit meatier maybe. Maybe uh, like uh, it feels like I, I would be m- more quick to bring this to my game group than mm. Azul. But Azul, I'd be much more quick to bring to like my family. Yep. So that's kind of the distinction between the two. Uh, but for that reason, I think like a lot of people listening to this podcast might really if you enjoy like Azul, you might like this even more being in that more like deep end of the hobby mindset.
0: And this being Miyabi from Michael Kiesling. Okay, now on to the ludographies together. Woo! K&K, here we go. This
1: might be a long episode, but we got time, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. And, you know, so... The the first games we're going to talk about are just uh, Tikal, slash Java, and Mexico, the Mass Trilogy. I think these are the games that they are most known for and the games that are still sort of counted as their most lauded and successful games uh, that they've co-designed. It's tough because I think just timing wise and the impact that they had on the hobby, it makes a ton of sense. I've played Tikal and Cusco. I enjoy them both very much. They feature that action point selection system. Uh, Cusco dishes 10. It actually, you're going to be playing with six action points and it's all about oh that's breezy it's breezy <laughs> but <laughs> it's all about building out a board just like to call you're adding t- tiles to a shared space and then you're moving your pieces around you have workers just like into call but the, the movement has to do a lot more with what terrain types you're moving them between Uh, because half of the every tile it it, there's more nuance here but more or less each tile in the game has farm spaces and city spaces so the primary tiles in the game are sort of three hexagons glued together two of those will be farm spaces and one will be a city and you can move your workers as far as you want alongside farm spaces that are connected or city spaces that are connected but going between them will cost you points also you can't move past other players workers so there's this interesting interactive blocking element where you're dynamically creating this board. That you're trying to move your people through, uh, but you can also block and react to how other people uh, are dealing with navigating the board. Layered on top of this is, as Jake alluded to before, this really cool system where you're playing tiles on top of other tiles, increasing elevation, like you would see in the in the actual city of Cusco down in the mountains. And there's an advantage to being the highest, which is that at the end of the game, you know, you're building up these temples, kind of like in Tikal, and whoever is the highest has meeples the highest in the city where those temples are located is the player who gets to score them. So you're collaboratively building these cities that you're then building temples in and then fighting to be the highest up. So not necessarily to control the most spaces of a city but to control the within the area of those cities, the highest spaces uh, and trying to puzzle out how you can fit higher and higher onto those spaces. There's a lot of other neat mechanisms. There's this card auction system where you can throw fares in different cities. And if you're in the cities, you can spend cards to try to win them. That actually reminded me a little bit of a Kinesia game Taj Mahal's main mechanism, because you lose the cards that you bid. You can also elect to tie those. Uh, tie those festivals, there's a lot going on. Uh, But my first play of this uh, was around two hours, which was pretty long, but mine, and I actually just played this game this morning again and it came in at right around an hour. And we both really liked it. I think that it felt a little more samey than we expected at two the second time. But it's one I'd love to try with three players or even four, as I think the fightiness of it would really come out. And I love the spatial element of building up the board, not just out. Cool.
1: Uh so yeah, you could definitely see the crossroads with Miyabi there. Yeah. And I I unfortunately haven't played Java Cusco or Mexico. Mexica, rather. I would definitely want to, um, and I haven't played Torres either, but, you know, being, I, I, you know, I think people like it, right? It's a, also a 1999 release and also won the spiel.
0: I think it's actually a 2000 release. These notes, it, based on the Wikipedia, I think it's 2000 okay. and won the spiel is what happened. Yeah.
1: They're like, they released two games that are so good 1999. They're just like, we'll really give this one the award this time and this one the next year.
0: So Torres is listed as 1999 on BGA, but maybe... Or BGG.
1: Probably. Or BGG,
0: but won the spiel in 2000. So who knows how they were doing it back then? I and who knows how it ends up on BGG. Sometimes there's wiggle room in the listings. Torres is also all about building up. There's these unique um, sort of, it's hard to describe them, almost like castle looking pieces that you're building up in terms of spaces. So it shares sort of that element with Cuzco. I guess they were really ex- inspired by that temple system that they created into Call where spaces are worth more and more points. And it seems like Torres is a lot about that building up and trying to be the one who's claiming these higher and higher spaces as you climb.
1: I'm just also struck by how prolific they were as designers. Seacol, Antor is 1999, Java, 2000 exca 2002 wasting no time and that's kind of ben kiesling's mo right it's like azul every year bang 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 why not okay so i think we'll talk about in a little bit you know some of the themes and i think that a lot of the themes can be traced back to those games i think you know even i don't know enough about board game history to say like action point systems are like accredited to these games but when i play a game today that feels like kind of Action point heavy. My first thought was like, okay, this is just like to call. Uh, Mm -hmm. I played Jiraku at a recent game night, which is a really cool trick-taking game with like an area majority. I was just like, hey, this feels like a Kramer and Kiesling design in so many ways. Uh, And one of the things is that every time you play, so there's like one through six cards, valued cards. And when you play this, that just says how many action points you get. So you play a six card and you get six action points that you resolve right away before completing the trick. So it's just like such an insane amount of action points to resolve before somebody's like, okay, I'll play the two and you win the trick or whatever. And not a Kiesling and Kramer game, but just No, it, no, yeah, just to be clear, by... but just to say, like, this is yeah. a a new game and it feels so inspired by this kind of lineage. Wow. Yeah, anyway, so that's just uh throwing that in there, a yeah. recent connection. Next up on the list of actual K and K designs, Houses of Carrara, we did an episode on this number. 51 so you can go back and hear all of our thoughts about it i mentioned it too uh, as i was talking about heaven and ale i think the most interesting thing about it is that the game's always asking you to sort of be picking between getting money or getting points and of course you need money to get more points later Uh, and then also just has like this really fantastic game of chicken that you're playing with opponents where you want to be just staying sort of just ahead of people on in various categories uh so that like as soon as they reach the limit to be able to score something you can steal it from them yeah like now is the time to it and i think that is a really clever sort of mechanism uh and the, i think this like game of chicken to use the game theory term is another kind of hallmark of some of uh the other game designs uh Renature The next one we'll talk about, which we covered in episode 102, is another one that feels like I'm playing all these different games of chicken with my opponent all over the board. Do you want to give the brief overview of Renature?
0: Yeah, so Renature is an area control game driven by the placement of dominoes so there's a board that depicts uh, a lot of areas basically split into two types there's areas where you can place your dominoes that will surround areas where you're going to place other pieces that fill up those areas that you could control so by placing a domino next to a space you can put one of your one of your pieces that will control an area that's a plant in this version of <laughs> grass, this game: grass shrub, or trees or shrubs tree bigger tree yeah and this has a similar sort <laughs> sort of game of chicken going on where you really want to be claiming the larger spaces further down uh the board you kind of play from top to bottom as you place your dominoes but at the same time as you commit to certain areas other people can respond to that and ties in this game are add this novel twist to scoring which is that if two players are tied it's treated as if they're both not there So in a multiplayer game, it creates this really interesting opportunities for someone to sweep in and upend the whole balance of one of the really large point scoring areas at the end.
1: And when you place into a region, you score points based on how many other pieces are in the region, Uh, but unplaced pieces at the end of the game are negative, which creates this like amazing tension between you want to be placing pieces on basically every turn or risk taking negatives at the end, but you never want to be the first person to play in any region, and everybody's trying to navigate that those same that same tension. It's a wonderful game uh, that I think it, it's it's a little weird in a, in a, I think a really good way, a refreshing way. The theme is a little strange. It has a wonderful table presence, but maybe not what a lot of people think of as like sort of a beautiful table presence. I don't know. It's my favorite game of any that we've talked about. So, you know, I highly recommend, it. I think more people should should check out Renature.
0: Is it your favorite K&K game?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay. It's, I think it's like my number like six on my like top 10 games of all time in yeah. that recent list we did.
0: Yeah. I'll also note, Jake, this Renature has a cool uh, cloud system that allows you to take more, more powerful actions within the game kind of an enabler mechanism that adds tons of options to the decision space and that's something really notable about that game that really livens up the decision space and there's this that actually uh there's a version of that in Cuzco which is just that you have 3 extra one action point tiles that you can use throughout the game so three times in Cuzco you can pay one of these tokens and take a seven action point turn wow which is a twist that, in retrospect, maybe the game didn't need,
1: but <laughs> yeah, has, true. and uh, they've refined it. They've ref-
0: yeah. But Renature also one of my faves uh, on the list, and I think in terms of a game feeling novel and having a scoring twist, being things that are a, a hallmark of maybe these two designers, it delivers in spades.
1: What's your favorite of all of these? Since I, I think said my
0: <laughs> right now my favorite of all of these is probably I mean to call is just so fun. I yeah. love the relationship between the tile placing puzzle and the area control so I think to call is my favorite right now. I really like Cuzco. I love Palaces of Carrara, especially if you play it with this quarter. Are you,
1: you're, are you considering El Grande? I'm talking about all the games. All the games? Oh yeah. no. Yeah. That's Azul, so hard. I mean as El Grande like I did it. I already You determined. did do it. All right, you think you you can think. Well, I talk about Savannah Park. Okay, okay, okay. So Savannah Park is uh, the next game on the list. This is a Capstone Games game from their family line. Uh, it has been kind of done in a second version as Caldera Park, which is the twenty I think twenty twenty three release. A uh, very new game. So I guess Savannah Park has done well enough to warrant uh, iterations. It has a really cool, basically the way a turn works in this game. So. you're let me start over so you each person has their own individual board that is like set up as like a little savannah park with trees and animal tiles that are randomly laid out the way a turn works in this game is whoever is the active player finds one of the tiles they want to move so they could say "I i want to find the tile that has one zebra on it or i want to find the tile that has three zebras on it or one antelope and one elephant on it and then everybody finds that same tile moves it to another place on their board, flips it over so that it shows like your player color side of that tile. And that indicates that tile can never be moved again. You go around until all tiles have been, all animal tiles have been moved and flipped, and then you commence a very, very procedural scoring system, which in the kind of base game standard rules is the only time that you'll score points in the whole game. And you have to go through each set of animals and basically calculate the number of animals in your biggest group times the number of watering holes they're connected to. And it could be up to, I think, like 11 times three. For a maximum of thirty-three points, so it's, it takes a bit of like time and calculation to kind of get through this whole whole system at the end. And there are a few other like very small ways you can score points by having like uncovered uh, tree and grass spaces, I believe. Uh, but it's like a really great family weight game. It reminds me a bit of my city and that like teaching the rules of the game is. One or two sentences and then everything, all the complexities offloaded into like sort of end game scoring, uh, which kind of makes it so that people play the game, have fun and then realize like all the horrible mistakes they've made when you get into that scoring. And they're like, OK, let's go again. Uh, so that's Savannah Park. It's a real winner uh, for a family gateway weight game uh that i i absolutely love um okay brendan i know you haven't played savannah park so why don't you just go ahead and tell us your favorite kramer and or kiesling and or kramer and Keesling game it's el grande okay <laughs>
0: what a game What it's a, a game. good game <laughs> yeah so let's just cover some of these these next three real quick. Maharaja is a, a game that is held up as another game that people really love from these two. Coal Baron is sort of a contract fulfillment worker placement game where you can go to locations that other people have gone to by paying additional workers to go there. So another sequencing kind of timing consideration game. I know that that game has a group of ardent fans who really love it. Um, and then Another game that I wanted to mention, most of the games we've covered have been sort of capital B board games where you would sort of spend a full game night playing them. But they have a card game called Linko that is pretty celebrated. It's a lighter game that is kind of a climbing, shedding type game where you, you're you going around trying to play cards together and then you can steal cards from other players by, if you meet a certain criteria. It's like a lighter family type card game that was... Well received in Germany, but not released uh, outside of that region for the most part. Okay, we did it, Jake. This is going to be one of our longer episodes of Decision Space. So good for us to know that as we do these in the future, maybe tacking on a mini review to the start doesn't give the rest of the episode room to really spread. But I think we'd be remiss the opportunity to talk about some of these features that are offered by the games these designers typically share. So, Jake, what do you think of this I- this idea that, like, Kiesling typically brings a puzzliness to these games? And we see the co-designs uh, with Kiesling involved and also his own games being a little bit puzzlier than some of the games that Kramer does on his own. So I think that's something that's a feature of him, yeah. that he brings the designs.
1: Yeah, they're puzzly games and they revolve around an individual player board yeah i think as kind of in most cases so less interactive whereas kramer is bringing more of that interactivity to it more of that area control right? Like El Grande being his game. And then I think the assumption we're making is that he's bringing that type of framework to the collaborations like Tikal, Cusco, Renature, and then combining it with the more uh, puzzly kind of framework of Kiesling.
0: It's very interesting, a game like Renature, Jake, because in some ways, you almost see the dom- the domino system and who knows how it was designed, but the domino system and how that plays out almost feels very Kiesling in nature, the puzzliness of that. Yep. <laughs> And then the area control system tacked onto it almost feels very Kramer-ish in terms of what's there. And again, they've worked together for so long, the lines are going to blur. But it's just, that's a neat game that I think kind of captures these two elements of both of them. I think the thing about the area control and the style that Kramer does that I find really interesting is how much, in at least within the Mass series, players have control of how much certain regions are worth and how much they'll score. There's a little bit of that in El Grande. You can move your Grande cube around and score more points if you win certain regions. Uh, and in that game, you're also choosing what regions score extra. So in that way, you're kind of choosing as players which regions are worth how many points over the course of the game. Not quite the same, but a same feel. And I think that livens up the area control that he his games tend to bring where players are making meaningful decisions about how much certain spaces or areas will be worth and also obviously the fightiness of competing over that follows naturally thereafter. Uh, but I like his area control, his version of it. It typically the resources and agency that players have. It's almost like you always feel like you have just enough to control a region, which leaves room for people to fight back in a meaningful way. It's really rare in one of his games that you find someone just runs away with an area, at least from my experience.
1: Yeah, and it's also a um it sort of feels to me like a more Euro style yeah. of area control, like sure. more passive aggressive. There's definitely like direct aggressive moves you can make in T-Call or El Grande or Renature, but it's not, I'm coming into your place and we're fighting. It's right. like, now I have one more person in your space than you do. How are you going to respond to that? Yeah, right. totally. Yep which really appeals to me a lot more than I think a lot of times we talk about area control games in in like more of a modern sense, or maybe it's just the the laughing table friend group I play with, but we're playing a lot of these games and they're always like ships and we're fighting and now we're like resolving a combat. And now, you know what I mean? And that's just such a different layer on top of the area majority that I just don't need at all. It just doesn't do anything for me personally, which makes these games so much more appealing to me. Than uh, you know something like a, a warp gate or an Imperium, the contention. Or uh a clockwork wars. Sure.
0: And then also the simultaneous choice kind of I want to flag as being an important part of El Grande. You're all choosing regions at the same time to remove cubes from this special Castillo, uh, which he uses a similar, we're all gonna make a decision at the same time and then reveal that decision to everyone in six nimmt. And I think that's a little feature that's there too. There's actually a little bit of that in Downforce, I believe, as well. Or maybe you play them sequentially in Downforce. But Jake. Some other things that come up in terms of their design is we talked about their games seem to really emphasize tempo and sequencing considerations there's a lot of I want to do all of these things but I'm forced to pick what I'm going to focus on and how I'm going to dedicate my resources and how many resources I want to dedicate towards trying to win something so in the palaces of Carrara you're committing to certain cities and trying to get the most of a certain city like Jake said and you want to be the first to score it Uh, so you could overcommit and then maybe be punished a little bit for doing that. Uh, Renature has a similar thing where you could pile up and where you go win really matters. El Gran day of course has that and then to call you have something similar where it's sort of you're spread thin and you're trying to figure out not just the best things to do but the best order to do those things
1: in yeah i i mean i think a lot of games emphasize sure. tempo uh and sequencing considerations i think that that we can even drill down more and say that there's something specific about the term i keep using and i'd love to know if you have thoughts or if there's a better term let us know in the discord or whatever but it's sort of like these like action gates mm. where like a benefit is gated off by something or someone in the game uh, and then once you have achieved that it's sort of like as soon as somebody makes a move then you can pounce. so in palace of carrara it's really clear where in to score the gold city you have to have two gold buildings buildings built there. Build there so if i have two and brendan has won there's no incentive for me to score that now i would always want to wait until he is like places a second one and then i can score that and take away that opportunity for him and now potentially he's wasted some Action efficiency. It, and I think that is like a really interesting sort of component of it. And that similar thing is found in Renature, where I, I mean, without trying to get like too much into the nuance of the game, uh, a lot of times you want to surround a complete area so that you get to score this like bonus point just by like completely surrounding one of the islands, for lack of a better term. Uh, so islands will often get to two spaces away from completing it right because then if somebody places the next one then the person after them presumably can make the more efficient single play of a piece um by putting it in the completion spot giving them like sort of all the rewards uh and so like these sort of like action gates are all over Renature, uh where you're trying to like and it, you know, the same thing happens with putting one of your plants into one of the islands, right? Because then the next person can be the one to like finish it and make sure they're getting more benefit. uh So it's like it's like a, a really spe- yeah, a standoff is specific type of uh tempo that feels so much more like binary than it does in a lot of other games where you're just trying to get like a, just a little bit like a emo tip, right? You want to be more efficient with your actions and sequencing really matters. But that game is all about just getting like a little bit more on each turn a little yeah. bit more on each turn where this is like when you achieve that efficient move you get everything
0: yeah that's a, it's interesting you mentioned Imhotep because it's, it's also so much about like trying to force your opponent to set you up for a strong move in, yeah. in a lot of these games totally K&K games. another thing that we wanted to touch on um, is it feels like a lot of their designs have novel scoring systems that really bring the games to life in different ways so they don't all there's not one sort of of like there's not quote unquote like a KK scoring as there is like canicia scoring that you think of with something like tigris and euphrates the equality that you want between them or samurai you see that in that game from canicia too but in kramer and kiesling games there's sort of novel systems that fit what's there and make it work so azul has a pretty novel system of how the tiles come in that really inform that the decisions in that game and the strategy of that game in a way that elevates it beyond i think what Another designer might have brought to call in Kuzco have the sort of take your actions and then score scoring system that set those games apart. And that feels really fresh of like, make the board the best it can be and then you get to score.
1: Is it fair to say that like the K scoring system is at a distinct point or points in the game, you will evaluate a bunch of different areas on the map and score points for them is that too generic because i was thinking again about that game jiraku and it has three times in a game you will score all the areas and whoever has the majority in them gets those points is it's exactly like el grande
0: yeah yeah i wonder if that is if that just became such a convention because of games like this i wish i knew
1: yeah or i mean perhaps yeah el grande kind of set being other kind of Sure. Games that had similar sort of maps and scoring systems, or perhaps iterated off one of their own designs. But yeah. I think all of these games sort of have that. Actually, Palace of the Court, not so much. But like Azul, right? At the end of the game, you're looking at each... Rows and columns. Yeah, and you look at all your rows types. and all your columns and get them. Yep. Savannah Park, I already described. Tikal, you're doing the same thing as like in El Grande, right? Where it's at distinct points. When the volcano comes out, you're looking at all the temples and jewels and you're scoring them. It, it's yeah. like a very procedural way of doing scoring. And and uh, I mean, it does a lot to shape the decision space and, and kind of the tempo, right? Because you want to be always like playing to this whether it's at the end of the game or several points throughout the game, which yeah. might just be the difference between a filler and like a full length game for these guys.
0: Sure. Then I guess also there's Renature and the ties that really inform the scoring system of that game. And in Palaces of Carrara, there's this cool deck of variable cards that change that game's decision space every time you play, if you played in the advanced version, which is how you should play. Uh, the final thing is, I think that the thing that really stands out to me is a lot of the games feel pretty novel. They're doing something somewhat unique unique or perpendicular to maybe other types of games that are there at the time. So Renature and its unfriendly ties jumps to mind. I don't know, Jake. I, I that's like a such a kind of a nothing burger statement. But things like Renature really stands apart, and Azul feels like an abstract, but it, it's so different than a lot of the other abstract games that I've played. I, I just there's neat little twists of the t- domino system in Renature where I, it doesn't feel like a, that would have come from any other design designers.
1: Yeah. No. I don't. It's th- when we're talking about 17 different games we've played it's really difficult to say like this is the one key and defining thing that makes these games specials uh when they are so diverse um but yeah i think a lot of these games have just like this like hero mechanism in a way that's just like wow That is so smart, so, you know, genius or whatever that, you know, does kind of set the game apart from others. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I guess, Jake, to finish, you know, we already kind of said our favorites, but maybe we that's just... Pepper out.
1: I'm ha- really happy with this list of seven games that we have here. These are our recommendations for uh getting into actually I'm gonna make it eight. <laughs> nice. Kramer is...
0: and or kiesling games.
1: Yeah, check these out, and I don't think you go wrong with any of these.
0: So it's Renature, the Palaces of Carrara, Tikal and or Cusco,
1: El Grande, Azul and or Miyabi, and Savannah Park.
0: Yeah. All great games. And you know, games that they offer a lot of very there's there's some designers where if we picked eight of their games I bet we could cut some percentage of them for feeling pretty similar and there's a couple on this list that feel kind of semi but most of them really stand on their own and kind of offer something pretty unique that you're not going to get in another design so I'm glad we can kind of elevate those as our decision space Kramer and or Kiesling picks
1: yeah and come into our discourse let us know what your favorite games are uh, if there are others that we didn't mention that we need to play we would love to hear all of that As always, you can join our Discord uh, by following the link in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. It was a long one, but I hope you enjoyed it. If you have thoughts or feedback on this new episode format, if you'd like to hear us cover other designers and their ludology or game histories, uh, let us know. We'll try and do even better next time. I think we have some lessons learned here. and as always, we'd like to thank Henry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. Thanks, and have a great rest of your week. Bye. Bye, y'all.